0: If Theology in the Raw has blessed you or challenged you or encouraged you on some level, then I would like to invite you to consider supporting the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to various kinds of premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts, the ability to ask me questions and dialogue with other Patreon supporters. Uh, Gold level supporters are able to participate in monthly Zoom chats where we talk about uh, pretty much everything. Those chats can get pretty wild sometimes, and I absolutely love it. So join the uh, Theology and Ra community by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Iran. My guest today is the one and only Caitlin Schess. Uh, Caitlin is a author, speaker, and a perpetual theology student. She has a THM a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary and, and is currently a doctoral student at Duke Divinity School uh, studying political theology. She's the author of a couple books, Liturgy of Poli- The Liturgy of Politics, and her most recent book is the ballot and the Bible, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where we go from here. Uh, this is kind of a, a free flowing random conversation about politics. Um, that it, it was a very, um, yeah, just that there, there was no kind of like a, a single topic within politics that we wrestled with. We just kind of were, uh, talking about many different things related to our current political climate. So uh, really enjoyed this conversation and uh, yeah, excited to have Caitlin back to the show. So please welcome back to Theology and Raw, the one and only Caitlin Chess. Caitlin, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on Theology and Raw.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: It is number two, I think, right? I had you on, I, I think, think so couple of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I, I don't know. I, are there any other PhD students at Duke that are like writing popular books and doing a PhD or are you the only one?
1: I think I'm the only one. Yeah.
0: Are you, I'm curious. Are you kind of famous there? Like are people? I mean, you probably can't answer that, but I, I would imagine people sitting in class like, "Dude, that's Caitlin. Her book's awesome," or I don't know.
1: It was a little weird. I'm I'm precepting this semester, so like you know, the, all of the MDiv students have like one big lecture a week, and then they're in a small group that usually a PhD student is leading, and my group. Like half, over half of them came in the first day and said like, oh, I was listening to you on a podcast or like my mom has your book. Or yeah. I was like, I didn't really anticipate this part of things. It's yeah. a little weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I bet. I bet. Um, I do want to talk about your recent book, The Ballot and the Bible. I am curious. Can we start with this? I, I don't plan ahead of time. Like I don't, I purposely don't like write <laughs> questions and stuff. So I, this literally just came to me because we were, di- we we're dialoguing a little bit offline. How would you describe yourself politically? Like if you're if you're mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving and there's like we all hate these conversations, right? I mean the Thanksgiving politics conversation. Like how would you describe yourself or maybe even how would somebody else maybe Well, let's start with how would you describe yourself, not how somebody else would describe yourself. Republican, Democrat, yeah, right-leaning, left-leaning, non-partisan, independent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you? somewhat left-leaning, um, yeah. but again, it, it would totally depend in comparison to who. I feel like mm-hmm. in my kind of prior life in evangelical institutions, I felt so left-leaning yeah, <laughs> um, because I felt more economically left-leaning and even on some social issues, I felt more left-leaning. And then now that I'm in an institution where I'm more theologically conservative than probably the average student and more politically conservative probably than the average student, I feel less left-leaning because of who I'm around. Um, But probably if you were to like, if I was to take one of those online quizzes, it would probably put me like center left in terms of economics and and some social issues. But I feel like I'm more conservative on social issues than I am on economic questions, which does kind of put you in a weird spot where you don't really have a great party affiliation to fit into.
0: When you say more left, so with economic issues, would you be like a bernie bro bro bernie <laughs> <laughs> what's a what's a female bernie bro um like, how, yeah. So, what do you mean by left leaning economically?
1: Yeah, like for example, I just did an interview for for the Holy Post, the podcast that I do with um, Matt Desmond, yeah. who's a sociologist, does all this work on poverty, and and he's like, look, if we just pretty, if we just make the richest Americans pay the taxes that they're supposed to pay, we don't give as many outs, as many breaks for them, mm-hmm. um, we could fully fund social services that would take virtually everyone in America out of poverty. Um, I don't think that I have quite the optimism that some of the kind of wonky policy folks have. About some of that stuff. I think Mm -hmm. there are cultural and spiritual things that make their solutions, you know, never perfect solutions. Um, But I think I'd be a lot more in favor than that, especially in comparison to the communities that I grew up in that were pretty big fans of capitalism, I would be a lot more in favor of what some of those might call wealth redistribution that I think is more just okay. us creating a more just society, not only for the sake of those who are impoverished, but honestly, for the great spiritual harm that I think happens to those of mm. us who benefit from the poverty of others.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to wander outside of my area. So if it sounds like I'm like <laughs> pushing back, it's more just like trying to get clarity or would you, would, would that be, would you be for something like the, you know, welfare or, what, people, what some people might call just handouts or something like, cause I, uh, like how do you get, a, how do you do that? And yet not incentivize like not working or something, you know, I think would be the Republican response or what would, yeah, maybe what would be the pushback yeah. to that argument and how would yeah, you that?
1: yeah, um again I'm, I'm thinking about all this in terms of this conversation that I just had with with yeah. Matt Desmond but he was talking about I mean the biggest problem that we have currently isn't a problem of people abusing the welfare system it's actually a problem of not enough people using the benefits that we have already determined should be accessible to them so okay. I, I think that that can be a problem on some kind of personal anecdotal level and that's mm-hmm. why I think I'm not quite I'm not a sociologist so I'm not going to think okay, that those yeah. are the solutions that really fix everything um, but I do think we seen historically and even in our you know contemporary context that the problem is less people abusing the system that's really kind of a trope or a stereotype that we get predominantly okay. from the Reagan era. And there's some kind of racial elements of it that really play into yeah, it. Totally, yeah, totally, the, the problem actually on the ground, if you look at a lot of the numbers, is that we've made the system really, in, in an effort to make it difficult to abuse, we've made it inaccessible to people. Huh. Like the hoops you have to jump through mean that, and I live in a pretty low-income neighborhood, so I think about my neighbors, many mm-hmm. of whom I live alone and in the same space I live in, most of my neighbors have five or six children. Mm-hmm. They are definitely in the income bracket where they should be able to access government services to pay for the food that their kids eat yeah. the system is really complicated for them like they have to be able to take time off work to show up and wait in line and answer lots of questions and fill out lots of forms and so if that's really what we look when we look at the numbers what the real problem is mm-hmm. and this is what matt desmond says he's like it is sinful for us to ask the kinds of questions we ask about do we have the money to pay for this or are people going to abuse this when what we know from the numbers on the ground is people don't actually have access to services that they should have Mm. access to, especially those services that go towards people who we can't be asking the question of, does this disincentivize them working? This is about whether children have food on the dinner table. Mm. That's something that I want us to throw money at. If that's the phrase we're going to use, I'm fine Mm. throwing money at that.
0: No, that's helpful. Um, I was deeply impacted by the book when helping hurts years and years and years ago, um, which, which, yeah, I kind of threw a wrench because I, 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 and I, I, I don't want to wander in an area that that I, I am not, I'm not an economist, never will be. I, <laughs> Me neither. I, I've got, a, I've got a decent grasp, I think, on biblical economics on a kind of theological level. Um, yeah, but, but thinking modern day, how to apply that to modern society, I, I, yeah, that's way above my pay grade. But yeah, the, the whole one helping hurts idea of giving there's certain times when people need just raw relief, just here is money because you're going to starve to death if you don't have money in the next few days, you know? Um, but I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like it's when, when a hurricane strikes Haiti there, you know, there, there's, there's that kind of need. There's other areas where that might be necessary, but most often we addressed what needs, I forget the language he used, like, um, you know, giving, getting, giving people opportunities to kind of have, have a sustainable living rather than a handout. If you give a handout to somebody that needs more um, opportunities for sustainable living, you're just going to, you know, you're not going to re- reverse the cycle of poverty, or ho- again, mm-hmm. however he put it. Um, anyway, um, so, okay, I I, I kind of want to go down the list now. So w- what's your view on, <laughs> is that okay? Or I, I don't want to, if you're not prepared to like,
1: I mean, I'm with you in that most of what I do is thinking about this biblically and theologically. I'm not a policy wonk or a sociologist, um, but I do think it can be helpful for people to know kind of where you're coming at, you know, with policy. Um, But most of the time, what I'm doing is spending time in churches or in Christian schools and saying similarly to what you just said, uh, you know, I'm very open to there being a variety of policy responses to these questions. I have some preferences and some of those are rooted in, what I think are false or truer stories we tell that support those policies. So part of my concern, part of how I've ended up being, you know, center left on some of these economic questions is I think we've told some really false stories about wealth and poverty in our country. Um, But I don't, I, you know, none of the work that I do is showing up to a group and saying, here are the policies that I think are the most Christian. Um, I think that lands us really in the realm of, practical reason and wisdom and and it's so contextual to the community um but i do want us to think about what stories especially stories that as most do tell us about what kind of creatures humans are and what kind of communities we should live in and ask whether those stories are really compatible with the way that Christianity talks about those things. And I do think that then plays into some policy questions because we're always using stories to support those policies. But I, I fully think that there can be a variety of Christian responses that are faithful when it comes to the kind of wonky policy part of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, I get, I get nervous. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. I get nervous when Christians talk about the economic prosperity of one particular nation as if that's like an intrinsic christian value i mean <laughs> okay so so you know what i mean like like okay america i think you can correct me if i'm wrong is 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 probably the wealthiest country in the history of humanity w- would that be one
1: or, one, of, at, at one least, of
0: yeah yeah um and it's like, oh, see, we need to. That's good. We need to keep that. I, I have so many questions about that. Like, is stockpiling excessive wealth? Is that a Christian value? Is it good when yeah. a secular nation does that? Where did that? Where did that wealth come from? Is our economic? Our I don't. Is America's economic prosperity hindering other countries around the world? As as a member of the global church. <laughs> That's a important question. Yeah, if 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 the country that I happened to be born in became ex- extremely wealthy, and we had, a, let's just say, a president who had a, a, an economic policy that was just, I mean, just wealth just pouring into the country. I I I, I don't. I, that to me that raises a lot of really nervous questions about. Usually yeah. that's at the expense of some other country, and for a right. Christian living in America to not care about that, I think as a unchristian posture. Am I onto something or am I off off the rails here?
1: <laughs> no, I think you're totally right. I mean, it reminds me of one of my favorite things to talk about is um, John Winthrop's really early document a lot of people will point to, to kind of describe a Christian founding of our nation prior to the founding of our nation but this document from 1630 a model of Christian charity which mm-hmm. is where Reagan you know way later will get this idea of America as a shining city on a hill because mm-hmm. Winthrop uses that phrase from the Sermon on the Mount um, but one of the other things that he does is he explicitly describes in this document his band of colonists as entering into a covenant with God and quite boldly is like here are the terms of the covenant and he even says God has ratified this covenant which I he sort of decides himself this is what's happening and in some ways, he he draws on really appropriate biblical interpretation for the terms of this covenant. He goes to the Old Testament and says, God promises to judge Israel, and then in other instances to judge other nations for how they mistreat foreigners. So he says, if a stranger is at you at your door, we will be judged if you do not welcome them in and feed them and take care of them. But he also says, if we are faithful and, and we, you know, have a good Christian witness in this new world, we will be blessed with kind of stereotypical, not only from the Old Testament, kind of appropriating promises of land and, and kind of prospering in that kind of material sense, but then of course reading in his own ideas of what prosperity looks like that are not even just these promises he's misappropriating of land to Israel, but just sort of his sense of what makes a prospering community, which then when Reagan takes up this language, you know, 200 years mm-hmm. after that, especially does it when Reagan says he's he's talking about America as a shining city on a hill in his farewell address. He says, "I should finally tell you what that means." Uh-huh. And his description is a a nation humming with commerce that you know draws the people of the world because of our prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I love talking about this because I think it's such a good example of it's really easy to look at someone like Winthrop or someone like Reagan and say, "Hey, you said America is a city on a hill. Jesus wasn't talking about America. Bad biblical interpretation. You know, case closed." Mm-hmm. Which is true, but it's just like not as helpful as saying, well, no, actually, what they're doing is something a lot more difficult to discern in ourselves which is taking this passage and not just misapplying who it's addressed to, but filling this biblical language with other meaning, foreign meaning, that's all of our values and, and the things that we think make for a flourishing community are now read into this passage from Deuteronomy or this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, I think, something we're much more susceptible now, even among Christians who are wary of, you know, think talking about America as a Christian nation or wary of this legacy Mm -hmm. of appropriating promises to Israel, to America. We might be really good at not doing that, but we're not very good still at not reading into biblical passages all of our ideas about what flourishing are that might be really counter to when Jesus calls the people of God a city on a hill, it's like five verses before that, that he says, blessed are the meek and the persecuted. Like that's not a vision of flourishing that fits with an American ideal of, you know, prosperous economy and military might.
0: Well, this, this kind of takes us into your book. I don't, we didn't plan it this way, Mm -hmm. but I mean, the subtitle of your, you know, the ballot in the Bible, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics. Oh my word. Uh, what, okay. Uh, what led you to want to write this book? And then I want to get into kind of the, you can give us the, 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 gist of it.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I had no desire to write a book during my doctoral program. <laughs> I had told people after my first book, like zero chance that's happening again. And then, true story, my first editor, who had Caitlin Beatty, who had moved from IVP to to Brazos, reached out, and I was like, no way. And then, right before I answered her, I went in and got a cavity filled, and truly outlined this book in my head while my cavity was getting built. Oh, my word. (laughs) So I've told the Brazos folks that, and they're like, we need to get people into the dentist. Like, maybe this is how (laughs) we get these books figured out. Um, But really, like, practically, it really was a combination of two things. I was doing a lot of work in 2020 after my first book came out, going to churches, going to Christian schools, talking about faith and politics. Mm -hmm. And the number two most often questions I would get afterwards was first some Bible verse and just like quoting the verse and saying, explain that. Romans 13, give unto Caesar, what is Caesars? You know, the Jubilee in in the Old Testament, whatever it was, explain that in political life. So I was like, okay, people really are, I'm glad people are thinking about the Bible and what that means and they have questions Mm -hmm. about it. But then even more than that, the most common question was, how do I talk to my aunt at Thanksgiving? How do I talk to this person in my small group? How do I talk to my family member, my neighbor? And what I really kind of discerned as people were asking these two questions was a lot of what they were asking wasn't about how to have conversations with people who were not Christians, which is an important topic. They were really struggling with their closest relationships, which Mm -hmm. tended to be with people who were Christians. And it often centered around cherry picking, throwing Bible verses back and forth on social media or in person. And so what I wanted to do was have something that addressed how to faithfully read scripture for political life but I figured if I went in straight with like contemporary examples, <laughs> does yeah. Romans 13 apply to Black Lives Matter protests? Does Romans 13 apply to COVID restrictions? I was like, we, you know, walls are up, temperature's high, like there's no <laughs> way we're having a good conversation that way. So I thought, what if I asked, is is the way that loyalist priests use Romans 13 in the Revolutionary War an appropriate use of Romans 13? That feels close to us. We have a sense of American identity. We We care about this history. It still relates to us deeply. But it's not the hot button topic of the moment where we just can't have a good conversation about it. So I went to history. I thought I both want us to have examples that feel more distanced from us that we can think about well. But also I picked examples sort of representative examples throughout American history to also give us some sense of what habits do we inherit? Habits of not Mm -hmm. just interpreting the Bible based on our theological tradition or denomination, but habits for interpreting it for public life that we inherit particularly as Americans. And could some of the like weird contradictions in our history that kind of discomfort Mm -hmm. us make us better readers of scripture, actually make us uncomfortable enough that we go, okay, I don't love this example in the past, even though I like the outcome. What does that mean about what really matters when I interpret scripture? How could I see my own biases and prejudices by seeing them in someone else where I can see them more clearly?
0: Can can you give us an example of what you're talking about? A concrete example. I mean, you kind of mentioned Romans yeah, 13 yeah. in passing. I mean, there's, there's several others you could probably go to.
1: Yeah. So I, I, the first example that I thought of with the book was Romans 13. It's, it's easily the passage I get asked about the most, and yeah. it's probably the passage that prior to writing the book I had thought about the most. Um, prior to deciding I should do a theology degree, I had really thought about New Testament in part because mm. I was reading a lot of like Paul and Empire, Jesus and Empire stuff. Yeah. I really cared about Romans 13. I was curious about that. Um, I learned quickly at the end of seminary that I'm a theologian and not a biblical. Scholar, but I still love that passage and was interested in it, and um, I found it really fascinating. How many sermons there are from the revolutionary era where loyalist priests go very enthusiastically to Romans thirteen mm-hmm. and to 1 Peter when it says similarly in First Peter it's even more direct. It literally in the King James says, "Fear God, honor the king." Yeah, <laughs> so it's not yeah. Peter, it's the king. That's really helpful if you're supporting a monarchy. <laughs> um, and so I went to these sermons and just wanted us to think together about are these good interpretations of romans 13 not only because they discomfort those of us that really confidently use romans 13 today against policies we don't like Mm -hmm. and yet the most kind of literal direct interpretation of this would preclude the american revolutionary war and so there must be something else going on with romans 13. Um, even if the loyals were right it just seems like it can't be so universally used we have questions about what makes legitimate government under what kinds of injustice are rebellion ju- is rebellion justified. And so those sermons were helpful not only in, I think, seeing the way that the context that you were in, your own financial interests, your own political interests, might shape your desire to use Romans 13, but also then kind of prompted some questions about, well, what was the revolutionary kind of preacher's responses to this? What kind of interpretive moves did they do? They very often went to Old testament stories of unjust kings <laughs> they funnily enough they really loved esther because they still had some sense of wanting to revere the king that's so important mm-hmm. so in the story of esther like, well you can say there's an unjust government that needs to be rebelled against but you can really pin the blame on the evil evil underling not so much on the king the king's just sort of pushed along by the evil underling so they would go to these stories and see themselves in those stories and say what's the role of us as daniel what's the role of us as esther right. how can we do that in the context we're in and so in most of these chapters the kind of response to this history for me was not here's the person who was wrong and here's the person who was right though sometimes in the case of the civil war we can make some pretty good judgments about who was wrong and who was right but more than that i wanted to say what kind of interpretive moves are most comfortable for those people what are they drawn to and then asking us are we picking and choosing which side uh, do we prefer a- testament commands that are just easy cherry picking verses? Do we like narrative stories that we can play an exciting role in? Which of these are we drawn to and why? And what does that say, not only about our habits of interpretation, but really for me, foundationally, the conditions of our hearts. A lot of the book is not, here's a list of hermeneutical rules that we can Mm -hmm. discern from this. It's how does this convict us or challenge us? How does this lead us not just to read the Bible better, but to read ourselves better, to read the world that we're in better, to focus more on what kinds of practices and community make us the kind of people who can read this well for the moment hmm. that we're in.
0: It's, it's almost like the book has a psychological undertone to it. Like why? Wh- what are the circumstances that sort of shape how we? Yeah. Read certain passages. I, I found that fascinating because I yeah I've, I've done a bit of work on Romans thirteen. It is fascinating. How, I mean, I'm just going to repeat what you said, but how different interpreters how how we have these lenses on when we read Romans 13 the lenses are created by our certain relationship to our current government if you're if you're living yeah. in you know under some dict- dictatorship you know that's terrible you're going to read Romans 13 different than if you're super patriotic and think your country's you know the city on the hill or whatever um totally. so do you you don't so you would you you don't think that the revolutionaries were violating Romans thirteen, or do you have a strong opinion on that? I did. I've I've wrestled with this question. But I don't know enough to. Like, I, I don't know.
1: I don't have a super strong opinion of if they were right or not. I do think that on one hand, it's helpful to look at some of the revolutionary interpretations and say, okay, some of them were just kind of cherry picking themselves. We're just going to selectively go to these Old Testament examples. Mm-hmm. Some of them really were saying how do we harmonize or at least how do we reconcile okay. something like romans 13 with acts 529 we must obey god rather than human beings and right. trying to do a real biblical theology of it whether or not that biblical theology that i do think is the right kind of mm-hmm. approach or method whether or not that justifies rebellion under the particular political conditions they were in. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I don't, I don't, I I'm not in that context and I would be kind of hesitant yeah. to offer a judgment on it. But I do think it complicates the situation, especially when you consider how many of those people that said, you know, freedom is important. They went to Galatians and are like, this is not just a spiritual <laughs> truth. This is a material and a political truth immediately turned it into a spiritual truth when the enslaved people that they had brought to America said actually that freedom has material implications for us too.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I Yeah. It, it's so, there's so think? many, what's that?
1: What do I think? Do you, I, you think it was justified?
0: I, I, let me, um, I don't think I have a strong opinion. Uh, the, the, so the specific question is the whole, yeah, we can do Yeah. First Peter two, Romans 13, submit to governing authorities. Obviously there's caveat, there's examples of faithful Christians yeah. not doing that. Um, yep. and so were the revolutionaries, disobeying Romans 13, or were they following one of the caveats? Um, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, because we're we're taking a very unique first century situation and trying to map it on a very unique, what, 17th, 18th century mm-hmm. situation. So I, 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 yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, because also the church, the church was a, I mean, the main point of Romans 13 seems to be like, don't participate in these kind of like, um, Jewish revolts against Rome that you know that have flared up from time to time, especially a few a decade after Paul wrote that, right? You have the whole uh, the, the war of yeah. 80 70. So, I, I think he's discouraging violent revolt, he's not, I don't think he's giving some absolute like always obey the government kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the Revolutionary War to say. <laughs> I know. I know more about like Paul's situation first century. I don't know yeah. enough about our the Revolutionary War to say whether this would fit or not. So I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think just raising a question sometimes can flare up people's yeah, yeah. emotions. Yeah. How dare you even? I'm like, hey, I'm yep. just – worth wrestling with. I mean, yeah. So, um. You you mentioned in passing that you had you 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 used to be on a kick of like Paul and Empire, and I think offline we talked about how you were kind of more into a Howard Was kind of approach, and now not so much. Can you um would be curious what your journey in that brand of political theology has Mm -hmm. looked like? Mm Because I'll confess, I'm kind of yeah, I I'm I'm still maybe in that Paul and Empire kick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I yeah. think Ross, I, I, I mean Howard Ross is a theologian. I'm a biblical studies person, so whenever there's always that sure. tension, you know. Um, but with, so Yoder, I mean, in terms of his exegesis, at least not his life, unfortunately. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think he got a lot of things right, and a lot of the Paul and Empire guys, they, they do seem to see empire kind of around every single <laughs> verse, which I try not yeah. to. Do. I know in my own heart that I'm prone to that, so I try not yeah. to. But I do, I think there's more empire than the average person realizes meaning a lot of these biblical stories that we take about, you know, or sayings, you know, about kind of spiritual truths. They are that, but they also include some political subversive things as well. Just confessing Jesus as, you know, son of God was kind of throwing shade on Nero. Um, and we, and we have this kind of language Pretty, pretty pervasive in scripture. Anyway, so so yeah, what's your relationship with Howard Was how Howard approach to political theology? What does that look like?
1: Um I think Howard is lovely. He's a very kind man. <laughs> he still <laughs> wanders the halls of Duke Divinity while I am there. So greatly appreciate him. Um but yeah, I did kind of especially I think in the aftermath of twenty sixteen, I was a seminary student. And I wasn't really in a seminary that gave a lot of instruction on politics or ethics. It just mm-hmm. was not classes that were offered. It wasn't something we really thought about. And so I was hungry for reading something. And I read Resident Aliens, I think mm-hmm. my first year, and loved it. Read a lot more Hauerwas over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And other folks like him in the kind of anabaptist political theology yeah. world. Part of my move away from that was partially just I decided to Go do a degree in political theology and i read a lot more people um and part of that was also realizing that that's one particular tradition and i think a lot of the folks that i was around at the time in my seminary this was the only political theology they'd ever heard of and so it felt so refreshing and so exciting and so to get to read some other folks throughout history but also you know contemporary folks did just kind of moderate me a little bit um especially i think i spent a lot of time towards the end of seminary studying augustine and Mm. And kind of thinking about that political context, Constantine and kind of the fall of the Roman Empire and all of that political context and realizing having a lot more sympathy for the folks that said, what happens actually Mm -hmm. if the emperor does repent? (laughs) What happens if the king says yes, is like the famous line by the political Augustinians, right? It's like, what, what happens then? What if the ruler does become a Christian? What does that change? And having more sympathy for asking questions that were new questions at the time and trying to come up with really good answers. And then that leads into kind of how i ended up in a place where i have some frustration with the kind of anabaptisty approach is partially because i look at the history of western political thought and i think christian christians have a lot of responsibility for the language and concepts that have shaped all of our political life not in the way that some conservatives today might say oh america's founded as a christian nation we're right. the new israel and but in the sense that it is true but especially I mean we act like the the kind of reformation era enlightenment era was a real separating of politics and theology that era was full it was like a resurgence of interest in political theology Mm. especially the concept of, of the hebrew republic and looking to the old testament as a model for political life in like 16th 17th century and so for me now i look at the history of the country that i'm in and i think christians have a lot of responsibility for the hand that our communities have had in shaping the life that we have together today. And so I'm a little more reticent to Mm -hmm. the idea that the most faithful response to the political life that we have had a huge hand in creating is some degree of withdrawal from it. Um, I think to a certain extent that can be really faithful and good, but part of the reason that I'm wary of some of the, like, you know, this is the famous criticism, right? Of, of resident aliens is like too much aliens, not enough resident. (laughs) And I, I worry (laughs) about that sometimes, not just, not just as an abstract theological question, but Mm. in part, because what I'm really concerned about for political theology is that we don't just think about these questions in the abstract, we are bound to the place and time that we're in. And for American Christians, especially today in a moment where I think it makes perfect sense that we would feel like political power is waning, cultural power is waning. I'm worried about a response that says, okay, let's reclaim our kind of status as really you know not really citizens of this place as resident aliens in part because i worry that we're getting out just when the ideas that we handed to the communities that we're in aren't working very well for us (laughs) and are are starting to feel like not our own and i worry that 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 impulse comes from a good place but can lead us to a place where we really are not fulfilling the obligations that aren't just universal Christian obligations, but are particular Christian obligations for those of us that should feel some responsibility for the kind of Western political culture we've created.
0: Exiles in Babylon 2024. That's right, folks. We're doing it again. Our third annual Exiles in Babylon conference will be held on April 18th through the 20th, uh, 2024, here in Boise, Idaho. And this one is going to be an absolute barn burner, as we say here in Idaho. The topics we're going to discuss are uh, deconstruction and the church. And we're gonna actually hear from people who have deconstructed and others who maybe should have deconstructed but didn't. We're also gonna discuss women, power, and abuse in the church, which is obviously a huge issue that we absolutely need to discuss. Um, We're gonna talk about faith and sexuality, specifically how can churches become places where uh, LGBTQ or same-sex attracted Christians can flourish within a traditional sexual ethic. Lastly, we're gonna discuss, can't believe we're doing this one, we're going to discuss politics. That's right. Politics and the church where we're going to have uh, various speakers present. We're going to have a right-leaning Christian, a left-leaning Christian, and a I don't know, what do you call them? A nonpartisan or Anabaptistish Christian, share their perspectives, um, share their perspective. And we're going to put them all in conversation with each other. And of course, we're going to have Evan Wickham and Tanika Wyatt uh, leading us in worship throughout the weekend. I really, really, really want to mix it up this year. We're going to hear from leading thinkers in each of these areas. We're going to, um, we're going to be having different viewpoints in conversation with each other. It's going to be honest. It's going to be raw and you're not going to want to miss out. I really think this one's going to fill up quickly. So if, if you want to attend in person, Boise, Idaho, April 18th through the 20th. Register very, very soon. Just go to TheologyInTheRaw.com. That's TheologyInTheRaw.com. I really hope to see you there. So, so Jamie Smith, his book, Awaiting the King, mm-hmm. sounds like you would probably really resonate. I feel like he took a lot of Harawasian. I mean his his narrative his personal trajectory sounds like yours, you know, where he was very much hundred percent all and in, he, but then he's rounded himself out a little bit. So still takes a and lot we of that. Yeah,
1: yeah, we both read a lot of Oliver O'Donovan. That's a huge part of it, too. Is that, yeah, so that's that, it. That,
0: that's, that's it. He's he's the Pied Piper that leads people out of a yeah. Anabaptist way. Is that yeah I can't understand him. I mean, not not <laughs> I, I I it's so hard for me to read, and I feel like I feel so stupid because everybody raves about O'Donovan. Like, oh, this book will change your life, and I'll read it. I remember reading Resurrection and Moral Order, which, Ugh. yeah, see, it's, <laughs> yeah, I know. And the the parts that I understood, which is about 4%, I I really liked. I don't, it's not him, it's me. I, it, this is again, my, the, my. No,
1: he is really hard. He is hard to read. Really?
0: Okay, yeah. Well, I helpful. mean,
1: people who have written dissertations about him will always start off with a joke about, like, we all know. He is impossible to read. So it is oh, not. Good.
0: You. <laughs> oh, that warms my heart. So I, but again, I think it goes back to this clash between p- biblical studies and theology, um, where theologians will read biblical studies and all these, you know, word studies and this, that, and the lecture. And they're like, what are you even talking about? You know, like right. what? And then we read systematic theologians and it's like, you're just making stuff up. Like you're just like asserting all this <laughs> stuff and like not even reading the Bible, you know? So, he he reminds me a little bit more of Bart, where he he does do a good exegesis too, yeah. from the parts that I remember. Anyway, I was I was wondering as you were talking, yeah, because I just recently read Smith's book and I was like, ooh, this is this is good. Like, how would I respond to some of this? I I don't I think Howarth and you know you know better than I do. Gosh, you live in the same school as he does. Um, I, I didn't I don't interpret him as much of a separatist as you sometimes get accused, although he does sometimes use language, that kind of hyperbolic, brash, yeah. harwas, like, whoa, you know, but then he'll round it out a little bit. Even in Resident Aliens, he said some things, and I'm like, that in of itself sounds very separatistic, but then he comes back and says, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we should embody, um, by removing ourselves from the kind of empire, we can better serve the empire as a distinct policy, you know, however he, you know, words it. I, so what, what would be your main point of departure or points of departure from a more Anabaptist? Is it that, that Christians have, can influence American politics for our context, um, for, for good. And if we have that opportunity, we should take it. And if we just take the hand off the wheel, like we're not, taken advantage of positively influencing society the way we could? Is that, or how would you?
1: I mean, yeah, I should have said earlier that part of this change too also happened in that I grew up Baptist and in seminary, I -hmm. became a Presbyterian. (laughs) So there's also just like larger (laughs) theological changes that come along with this. But I will say I was recently... Um, not to name drop this, but I literally, I was in a, in a reading group over the summer with a bunch of students, all of my advisor, Luke Brotherton, we were all reading a bunch of Augustinian political theology. Howard West literally does wander the halls. So he kept wandering into our meeting and talking about this stuff with us. And at one point he was talking about these, all these books we were reading were kind of in some way critics of him. They were all sort of saying like, no, an Augustinian account requires this really robust political life to a degree that the, the, you know, the separatists like Millbank or Howard Wass are, mm-hmm. are not that. Um, and he at one point, his description of the difference between him and these other folks was I they're asking the second question. That, you know, what does this mean for our political life? Okay. I'm stuck on the first question. Who are we? And what do we do together internally? And when he said that, I thought it was a good description of kind of the difference between him and these other people. But what I heard was, I just don't think those are two different questions. I don't think the question mm-hmm who we are as the people of God, and then the second, what he describes as the second question, what does that mean for our life in the world? I don't think those are separate questions. And so I think sometimes it's not so much an isolationist or a separatist thing, because I think you're right. Sometimes folks like him can get unfairly targeted that Mm. way, though again, sometimes it's fair, um, especially among some of their followers. It might not be so much a Howard was thing, but some of the people who pick him up definitely, I think, do that. But for me, it's not so much the separatist isolationist thing, though it can be that, it's really, where are you rooting the beginning of your theology? And I want it to be in the church, but I don't think of those as separate questions of who are we and then what do we do in the world? And I worry that that actually his critics can then end up playing into those two questions as two separate questions. And they can say, okay, yeah, you're right. We're dealing with the second question. And I would rather say those are not two separate questions.
0: Okay. Okay. No, that's good. Um, I'm curious, who, who who's... Who's like the primary disciple of Harawas? Like, uh, if you, if you wanted to, um, mm. you can, I mean, he's not young, and uh, like, yeah, the, the one the ones that come to mind, Lee Camp comes to mind as somebody who is kind of captured. He hasn't written extensively, but if a couple of books. Um, I'm trying to think of others that would be kind of well known. Stephen Long.
1: Are, Stephen Long. Um, he's at, he's at SMU. He was a Harawas student. Oh mm-hmm. right.
0: I haven't read him, but yeah, I know the name.
1: It is interesting, though, that it's. I think that the the general tenor at Duke mm-hmm. is less um, shaped by him as it used to be. So I think your your difficulty kind of naming who the successor is is yeah. kind of true here too.
0: Well, I yeah, and and this is totally anecdotal. Could be totally off, but it's um, yeah. I, I would imagine the Duke environment. Like you said, you know, it's 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 way more left leaning than than you are. Like you almost would sound more conservative, maybe in that environment. But
1: you know, I'm Har- a fundamentalist here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would, yeah. I, but yeah, but Howard was I, he, and I had him on the podcast and even asked this question. And he, you know, I said you 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 equally kind of combated both left and right wing kind of political yeah. identities. Where I I think it seems like now people. very easy to combat the right but i i I feel like it doesn't it kind of falls into you combat the right with the left or on the side Mm. of the left you know like like i think whoever got elected i think Howard wass would probably shrug his shoulders a little bit whereas i think people now who are critical of the right would kind of freak out if if a right-wing president got elected would that be a fair characterization i mean i i I can't I quite put my finger harder. on it. just, it feels what the people that seem to follow a Harawas critique of the right don't equally critique the left. And maybe it's a numbers thing too. Obviously the biggest problem in the evangelical church is, being in bed with the right, not, I mean, just statistically speaking. Right, personally, right. I think it goes both ways. It's just not as prevalent of, of a problem. But
1: Yeah, I do think it's harder to do what he did today in terms of being the person that can really not fit well in any category and can critique both sides. And I should say at Duke, I mean, in the Divinity School, there are lots of of fairly conservative faculty and lots of more conservative students, especially students that come from more conservative backgrounds. But the, the general tenor of like big duke duke university Uh, um there is a kind of liberal orthodoxy that can be challenging for people in the divinity school to figure out how to respond to because many of them are coming from really conservative republican leaning church evangelical contexts where Mm -hmm. that does seem like the concern is to critique that but then suddenly they're in an environment where as you just described like suddenly it seems like actually no that's maybe not the main problem here Mm -hmm. and that it's been really good for me to be at this place Mm -hmm. to moderate a little bit i feel like i spent my first you know what was it, nine years of higher education, college and seminary in exclusively conservative evangelical environments where I learned what the, the side was that I felt needed more critique for the place yeah. I was in. And what I worry is that sometimes, my friend Hannah Anderson said this to me once, I think it's brilliant. She said, most of the time when you go to seminary, you figure out what you think the problem in the church is and the problem is a lot of pastors and ministry leaders spend the rest of their lives never changing their mind about what they think the problem in the church is whatever they thought it was in seminary is what they think it is for their entire ministry and i feel really thankful and really just like blessed that i got to be in two very different environments because i think it helps me be more aware that it is so contextual. Yeah. Like this is what drives me crazy about about the internet. We're all kind of telling each other what is the problem and how you address it. And I think for most people, it's gonna be so dependent on the place that you're in, the time, the congregation, like what needs to be said at Duke, by a professor in a class, is not the thing that needed to be said by a professor at Dallas Seminary, and both of them can be totally faithful responses that sound like opposite things to the students they're talking to, but because of where the overemphasis is in the place they're in, that's the more faithful thing to say.
0: Do you find uh, that's? I hundred percent agree, and I think your your educational journey is absolutely perfect for that. Being in, yeah, heavy conservative context now, a heavy not so much. Uh, Context. Do you find yourself just on a personal level? Do you tend to kind of push back on the dominant environment, the dominant perspective of your environment, or do you tend to morph into it? It sounds like you're going to, I think it's the first one that you would, if you're in a heavy conservative yeah. environment, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, let's see things a different way. And now maybe you're having a somewhat of a different reaction.
1: Yeah, my like mom used things. to joke, because I went to Liberty University for my undergrad, and my mom used to joke that if they had sent me to a state school, I would have come back like a really conservative person, <laughs> 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 because she felt like going to Liberty, just I was like, I think this is wrong. And and I do think part of this is a personality thing of like, do yeah. you want to be the, and it's partially an academic thing, right? The people who become academics are the people who mm-hmm. can find the little nitpicky things to criticize about everything. Yeah. But I do think, as you said, I it's really... It's shaped the advice that I give to students who are applying to programs. A lot of people now will will ask me about the programs they're applying to, doctoral programs, usually after seminary. And I will tell a lot of them, like, part of this is personal discernment about what you need. I can't give you a universal answer. Yeah. But I way more prioritize for them diversity in the places they've been now because it's yeah. been such a gift to me. I really think it's shaped me in positive ways.
0: My best experience educationally was b- being in, in well being in the United Kingdom in a at Aberdeen University, it's a pretty even—the ge- biblical study, the, the religion department, it's fairly conservative, and I use that term very, very loosely. I mean, mm-hmm. like you had Christians actually there, you know? <laughs> like, right,
1: right, um, right.
0: But a lot of uh, denominational—there was a lot of di- diversity, denominationally, theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I just—it I lo- it was such a—I love that environment, compared to any environment where it's just very much groupthinkish, you know, and— I just think that can be so, yeah, so dangerous. Um, I have a political question for you that that me and a buddy of mine, I'm not going to name him because I, 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 but he'll know (laughs) if he listens to this, he'll know who he is. He would be very much a a left, not yeah, not a you you kind of like um, grew up fundamentalist and had a really like Mm. crisis, like allergic reaction to that, and uh, you know very politically, you know like like in tune and stuff, and he he's He's adamant that uh, Christian nationalism is like the greatest threat to mm. America right now, um, and he cites all this data and everything. I don't. I, I'm. If anybody knows me for more than five seconds, they know I'm the furthest thing from a Christian. Na- I mean, goodness gracious. Um. So I'm. I'm on board with like, yeah, that's actually <laughs> it's absolute syncretism, idolatry. It's not even. It's. It's might be nationalism. It has no scent of really anything really Christian about it on and on. and on. So I, I can go on and on, but I'm like, I don't, is it really that great of a threat? And like, who are, you know, I look at the, some of the main proponents and I'm like, I don't know anybody. I've never met anybody that either knows who they are or likes who they are. Like, I, and I'm in dozens of different denominations. And, um, anyway, so anyway, I know we, I and I'm not even that like, maybe he's right. I don't know. Uh, I, maybe there's, there's a bigger world out there that I'm not aware of. And maybe I'm in my own little isolated, weird, lowercase e evangelical camp that I don't know. So is it, is it a huge threat? Is this like a threat to democracy? Um, uh, the Christian nationalists, are they, you know, they have, do they have a lot of power and could they actually take over America for Christ? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I am not a social scientist, so I don't feel like I can really answer the kind of how big of a threat they are question. I will say I spent a lot of time thinking about the kind of Christian nationalism debate writing this book in part because one – i was spending a lot of time talking about the black church and the civil rights movement Mm. and i immediately went any just you know any definition of christian nationalism or critique of christian nationalism that would loop in what the black church was doing in the civil rights movement i don't think is a good definition and it's shocking how many definitions or criticisms potentially could (laughs) if they're too broad such that any kind of motivated by scripture motivated by christian theology work in the world that tries to make the nation more reflective of christian principles Mm. that would describe the real motivations and work of a lot of of black church members in the civil rights movement so that research has really shaped my i think my initial overreaction to the last few years that said maybe we just Pull the Bible out of this. <laughs> Maybe we pull Christian faith out of our political lives. The, the civil rights movement in America has really shaped how I think about all of those questions. Mm. But the other part that shaped this. I have a chapter in the book on the social gospel and a particularly one sermon that Washington Gladden gave, an important leader of the social gospel movement. Um, and he really does come out of like the liberal Protestant tradition. He would not be considered an evangelical, but at the same time, like most of the social gospel, he was living and working prior to the fundamentalist modernist split for most of his life. And so it didn't quite have the same contours that we assume of evangelical versus mainline, mm-hmm. but he gives this sermon to an American mission board, an American mission organization where he's 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 preaching on this passage from Isaiah, but he spends the whole sermon talking about the need to Christianize the nation. How in mm-hmm. the Old Testament, the main kind of subject is not the church, it's the nation. And so we should think in terms of the nation. And he has all these sort of ridiculous things where he talks about our greatest missionaries have been folks like Woodrow Wilson, like all these political leaders. Mm-hmm. And And there's parts of that sermon that are fully worthy of critique. And yet it has really, again, kind of questioned for me some of the over generalizations that have been made about christian nationalism because when he's talking and he was not the only one this was common language at the time christianizing the nation mm-hmm. when he's talking about that he's talking about stronger unions and a social safety net and things mm-hmm. that do not read as right-leaning political questions but left-leaning political policies to support and so I, to me, when I, I get most frustrated with the Christian nationalism conversation, it's that I don't think it's historically rooted enough. There've been a lot of examples in American history of trying to either in general terms, apply Christian principles to national policies, or even this explicit language of Christianizing that mm-hmm. didn't fall into some of the same tropes of the kind of right leaning stuff we see today, which doesn't mean he was right. It doesn't mean his interpretation mm-hmm. is good, but I do think it forces us. To be more specific with what we mean. I don't think what we mean is just applying Christian principles to American political life, but also then to ask what were the failures of something like the social gospel movement? It wasn't that they tried to do something politically, I don't think. I don't think that was their failure. I think they saw something really true about the social implications of the gospel and the message of the prophets. Part of the problem was they were overly confident that they were the ones that were going to kind of enact kingdom on earth, and they missed how paternalistic they were, how often racist and sexist they were. And so I think looking at that history, I think should both help us kind of more narrowly define what Christian nationalism is, Mm -hmm. and then see what are the real problems here. I don't think the real problem is that there should be Christian principles informing policies. I think the problem is, our overconfidence that we're the white hats that are going to save the country Mm. and that's why i think the civil rights movement is a better example for us to look to what it looks like to have christian principles inform political and social work because partially the position they were in was not one in which you could kind of wield power the way some people are trying to wield power now but also They were under no illusions that they could magically fix everything. They saw over and over again the way that civil rights protections failed to actually provide the justice that they were seeking, which didn't stop them from doing faithful political work, but did keep their focus pretty eschatological. Like It's pretty incredible to hear some of the things that they said that were deeply Christian statements of faithfulness oriented towards the coming of God's kingdom that were not escapist, that were not separatist, but did put limitations on what kind of methods for seeking the political goals you had, you could Mm -hmm. justly do. You don't respond with violence because Jesus will vindicate you. You don't respond with a kind of separatist Black Christian nation, which some, you know, there were some theorists that uh, proposed that. That didn't feel like an appropriate political posture for many people in the church, in part because they were like, we're awaiting the new Jerusalem. We are not creating it. Mm So that's... A way long, complicated answer to not even the question that you asked, but no, I think no, that no. history is really important. <laughs> this is so helpful,
0: actually. I mean, I, I do think the definition is super important because, like, as you said, as I, yeah. and I, I I have not entered that conversation. To me, like the 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 real kind of hardcore Christian, the 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 William wolfs the Charlie Kirk, the that crowd. Yeah. Like to me, that's so far outside of my orbit of the brand of Christianity that I find interesting that I, I just don't even have an interest in that. So if that's what you mean by Christian nationalists, I don't know, but, if, if, but like applying Christian principles as you see them to national policy that then anybody involved, any Christian who cares about politics. So apart from the Anabaptists, let's say in the Mennonites, <laughs> everybody's kind of a Christian nationalist <laughs> in that sense. Right. Um, if you use a definition that broadly, yeah. if you're like, trump is the worst thing ever and biden not the best candidate but hey he's better than trump and why do you think he's better well what's going to come out of your mouth as a christian is going to be
1: right
0: well he cares more for the 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 poor he's you know whatever you're gonna start stating economic you know policies that reflect your version of christianity if i could put it like that so um so yeah okay so it seems like the problem people have with Christian nationalism isn't the underlying principle of applying Christian principles to the nation. It's the the kind of principles that a certain group is trying to apply, you know, making it illegal to be gay. Somebody told me that um, some Christian nationalists would, would say, or just they're just, mm-hmm. yeah, just, I mean, all the kind of far right wing stuff that I find, you know, toxic. Um, so, okay. So let me be more specific then. In your opinion, if you don't have a strong one, that's fine. Um, the kind of Charlie Kirks, the the Doug Wilson, the William Wolfs, these these kind of voices, do you find them to be a major threat to democracy in in America?
1: I mean, again, I don't know about I don't know good numbers in terms of who they're influencing or what kind of power is building underneath the things that they're saying. Uh, and I and I do think that they concern me politically. I think there's some real damage that can be done, not only kind of on a national policy level, but what concerns me is often the people who consume a lot of that media Mm -hmm. and show up to a city council meeting or a school board meeting in their local community, and not only really kind of can threaten the stability of the community that they're in, but in those local communities where I think real political work is happening that can be really fruitful Mm -hmm. the basis of all of that is relationship and so if Mm -hmm. someone comes in and they have been consuming a lot of media that teaches them to treat the other people in their community as irredeemable evil people then that's our i mean that that's what concerns me when it comes to a threat to democracy i don't Mm -hmm. i can't make predict i'm not a political scientist i can't make predictions about what happens on a national level but i know enough about local political situations in my community and in communities of people i love who say this is undermining the trust that our neighbors have with each other or the ability we have to have a reasonable conversation about things that should we should be able to disagree but still work together on when it comes to, are we you know feeding the poorest people in our communities? Mm-hmm. Do we have accessible public schools for impoverished kids? Do we have like questions that we might disagree on big national questions, but we should be able to work together to solve these things. And that stuff is filtering down mm-hmm. in a way that makes those relationships that are necessary mm-hmm. to do that work a lot more challenging. And that concerns me.
0: So the social impact of their rhetoric their approach could be that could be um way more concerning than maybe the how many voices would be characterized as a christian nationalist or how many books they're selling that's the thing like whenever i see again i don't even know who i just know the name william wolf and he wrote a book defending christian nationalism i haven't read it so i don't whatever but like whenever i see him which i spend such a little time on x or twitter or whatever anymore but whenever i did it's like whenever he'd open his mouth it's like he yeah, has like Ten thousand people mocking him and critiquing him and stuff. I'm like, where's his fault follow- where-, where are his fans? All I know is all the people that think he's just, you know, just so ridiculous. Yeah. It's almost like, he, is this a bot? Is this a real account? Look like at the stupid stuff he says. Or I did. Somebody sent me a, a tweet from Charlie Kirk, I think, where he was defending colonialism. That cl- colonialism is like good yeah. for the world. Yeah. I'm like, is that a real like? like to me, it's so f- stupid that it's like. I kind of like yawn, like, ah, do we even need to be, do we even need to respond to this? But again, my buddy that I'm thinking of, he's like, I- absolutely we do. Cause this is, yeah, he's tons of pastors are actually believing it and following it and stuff. So I, I don't, yeah.
1: And I I think part of the problem, though, too, is that people like you and me who read a bunch of books and spend at least some Mm -hmm. time on Twitter, see this stuff and think, okay, we have to decide, like, do we spend time kind of intellectually, rationally responding to all of this? I think the problem is that it's not just people like you and me. It's the pastor who went to seminary, who likes Mm -hmm. reading books and is upset about this William Wolf book and spends a bunch of time constructing an intellectual response to it when the effect that the folks like him are having in our churches, I don't think, is churning out a bunch of people who have this really complicated political theology of Christian nationalism, they're impacting people who now are really afraid of immigrants in their community, or who are really anxious about the direction the country is going? They're not really consumed. I mean, the book I have the book. Christian, I haven't read all of it, but it's a pretty big book. It's not the kind of book I would, if I even liked it, hand to someone in my church because I would have thought it was pretty inaccessible. So I don't think that's the kind of threat. Is that people are picking up this as a developed, coherent political theology? What I am worried about is that people in a lot of our churches are really afraid of things that I don't think they should be afraid of, and and even more importantly than yeah. just like responding to what is actually worth being afraid of, I think that it's distorting the Christian message because it's it's leading people to think that a faithful Christian response to the world is full of fear, full of anxiety, yeah. and us versus them that we have to fight. And I worry that too many of us are, are tempted to become really well-versed in answering the intellectual arguments of mm-hmm. the case for Christian nationalism, rather than the pastoral response of, let's work through what you are afraid of. It's probably not actually rooted in this media you're consuming. It's probably that your next door neighbor had this thing happen and you're afraid that someone will break into your house too or you watched your teenager walk away from the faith and you're worried that the world is going to hell in a handbasket because of this deep very understandable pain of your child walking away from the faith and our pastoral response to that being here's an intellectual refutation of the case for christian nationalism does not address all of those deeply held fears and anxieties that are not just politically problematic, but are really theologically and spiritually concerning. I don't think we have the, I don't think we've done enough work to have the right resources for that. If we're spending all of our time writing treatises against the case for Christian nationalism.
0: That's really wise. Kat. I, I, that absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Um, I mean, f- for me, if I can say my opinion, I, I, <laughs> it, it, it the kind of Christian, this kind of Christian nationalism, I think is, I, I could totally be wrong. It seems like it's small in numbers, but the impact could be greater in in ways we don't foresee. But I I would, as a still a Anabaptist-ish person, to me, just, I think an idolatry of America or I, I would just say, I'll use a phrase, maybe unhealthy patriotism. Yeah. If you're going to ask me, I'd just probably just say patriotism, but let's just say a, a a patriotism that has sort of diluted your allegiance to Christ. Um to me that's the a huge. To me that and that's very pervasive, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um to where again we wouldn't even ask questions but we would celebrate America's prosperity without even asking deeper questions about the global um church in particular or to maybe if you have time for one more kind of topic um I I think the American in, the 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 military industrial complex and the very sinister ways in which that is manifested itself around the world, I, to me, that if you're gonna, and this is a very bipartisan issue, um, I think that I think that's probably one of the the biggest problems of well, of the mm-hmm. empire really right now. So I don't know, I, I yeah. Do you have any thoughts on you know, American foreign policy, the military? If you were in charge, would you keep the bud to military? Cause, I mean, you, you know, you're concerned about poverty. I'm like, well, can we borrow a little bit from our out-of-control military machine that has stations in, what, 80 different countries? Like, huh? like is that good for the world? How would we feel if, like, China had a military base outside of Los Angeles? You know, like, I— And I I just, I think there's, there's such deep rooted problems there that I think most people don't even really consider, but your thoughts on the military industrial complex.
1: (laughs) I am a military kid and so have a complicated relationship Ah, to this. So maybe Um, you can't speak
0: publicly if you don't want to. (laughs)
1: Maybe
0: we'll have a little chat at ETS or something.
1: Yeah. Oh, I would love that. I would love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll 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 leave it. I mean, but I I mean, okay, so I I well, no, I'm not going to I'll I'll save that for a podcast with without without you on it. But um okay, last question, last question, can you tell us who you're going to vote for? <laughs> or no.
1: Oh, I I don't know. I Okay. How? How? Yeah, I would not know yet. I did. I will tell you. um, I I won't tell you the names because it doesn't matter to anyone. But I will tell you that I just very recently voted in my local election. Okay. And that I'm I'm thankful for the ways that spending time thinking about those local candidates refocused what I am concerned about when it comes to my actual community, because there are people that I might run into. There are people that are addressing immediate concerns in my community and yeah. not to like briefly get on my own soapbox, but I just wish we would spend more time thinking about those things than mm-hmm. the kind of sexy national election topics.
0: You changed my mind on that. I, I didn't have a firm opinion anyway, but you're just last time you're on the podcast, making a firm distinction between kind of the national political, all the sexy stuff, the, the media Versus local politics, which there's wide open space to yeah. actually get involved in, and make a difference in in, in society. That, that that stuck with me, you know. To to now, I try to make a distinction mm-hmm. when I critique what I would consider unhealthy political involvement. It is the national stuff, not necessarily the the yeah. more local local stuff. Oh, I'm
1: glad and, you hear that.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. It's really good. I thought. Uh, I, what Cornell West? Uh, he, he's an interesting cat. <laughs> is he popular out there?
1: I, I don't know politically, but a lot yeah. of people at the Div School read him. I've read a lot of him, and I've enjoyed yeah. reading his work. But I, I don't, can't yeah. say if I will vote for him or not.
0: <laughs> okay, he's interesting. I love listening to him on interviews. Um, I still yeah. think, yeah, I don't know, I don't, yeah, he's he's interesting. But um, well, Caitlin, I've taken you uh, up to an hour. So thank you so much for the work you're doing. And again, the book oh, is the percent. ballot and the Bible, uh, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where to go from here. Uh, The name of your first book again was what?
1: The Liturgy of Politics. That's
0: right. The Liturgy of Politics. Okay. So um, thank you, Caitlin, for the work you're doing. uh, And your voice is really wise and impactful. So thank you for uh, keep pressing into this really important conversation.
1: Thank you so much.